1: This week, an episode that premiered in June of 2011, it's an episode we call JOY. That's the joy of risk. Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and up top we heard a sound collage by Mr. Jeff Barr, and this behind me now is Icaso by Lesasso. <laughs> I wish. I was kidding. No, I don't wish. I was kidding. I was kidding about wishing. I was kidding because a by the makes me giggle. And giggling is a lot of why we're here, my friends, because the subject of today's show is joy. It's summertime and bin Laden is gone. If I were you, my friend, I'd get those flip flops on good and snug. Light up a doobie, throw some poppers and lube in the backpack and hit the town. With a little R-I-S-K in the earbuds. Our first story today comes to us from a correspondent from The Daily Show. His new Comedy Central special, Wyatt Cenac Comedy Person, is getting raves all about the land. Here he is, Wyatt Cenac, with a story we call Runaway.
2: I, uh, I also, like Mike, was supposed to do this show a while back and I bailed out and I think I was supposed to do the one, uh, Eureka, which that one I actually had stuff for, like I was like, oh, I could talk for an hour about the sci-fi television show, Eureka, <laughs> Got lots of stuff about that. A town full of scientists, why is it not more interesting? <laughs> But instead I I agreed to do this and uh, joy was the topic. And joy is, it's kind of a tough one for me. Um, Only because like I don't, I don't have like a lot of moments I can think of as like, oh that's a joyous moment. Like I don't have like great moments of joy that I think to and like I've never had those and I, I never really grew up with those. Like my parents aren't like Vulcans or anything but like We just weren't like celebratory people in that way like it was i I don't know for some reason i guess for me like i always kind of saw growing up my my thought process was like oh well like you don't want to be like overly celebratory because like joy leads to hubris and hubris leads to hate and hate leads to fear and fear leads to the dark side and (laughs) i know that i just made a star wars reference after i made a star trek reference (laughs) Fuck you. <laughs> but I was just, I was never that person. Like I am a person, like I love sports, but when I see like my team score a touchdown and there's like a celebratory dance, I always cringe. Like I know, like I know I'm gonna be that old man at an Eagles game that's just gonna be like, act like you've been there before, but i like mutter it under my breath because even yelling it is like too much of a show. Like I like even like I just I don't go to weddings because like I feel like even that's like too much like oh yeah it's great that you all found love in each other's arms and that's wonderful that you found each other but at the same time like half of all weddings end in divorce and I'm not wishing any bad on you I just don't know if this is the most appropriate time to do the electric slide Like maybe after you've been married for like 50 years, then it's appropriate. Now it just seems showboaty. So I say all that because I don't have a lot of moments of joy that I can think to, but I have one from when I was in high school and I was 17 years old and I went to an all boys Catholic high school. And one of the selling points to my parents for this school was that they promised to turn your boy into a man, that they would make a man out of your boy. And so my parents ate it up like catnip and sent me there. And the way they would do this is they would have retreats. They would send you on retreats every year, freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, senior year. You would go on a retreat where you and some priests would go out in the woods where like nobody could find you and they'd share secrets with you which it's amazing to think that there was a time when, like, people were okay with letting their children wander off into the forest with priests <laughs> where no one else could hear. And they were just like, yeah, that seems safe. Get in that rusty van and go with, go with the good father in faith. But that's what we would do. We would have these retreats. So every... Every year, you'd go on this retreat, and you'd go out into the woods, and it's just like a day-long thing. And we'd go out there and get to the woods, and we watch The Great Santini. And that was the priest's idea of sharing the secrets of manhood to you, was that they took you to the woods and made you watch a movie. <laughs> that we could have just saved on gas money and watched back at school, because we did nothing else but just go out there, eat stew, and watch The Great Santini, and then like a priest said a prayer, and that was it. And they did this every year. Freshman year, you saw The Great Santini. Sophomore year, you went back out into the woods and you watched The Great Santini. (laughs) Junior year, guess what? You're watching The Great Santini again. And that's all it was, was just somehow watch this movie and, you know, figure out manhood in Robert Duvall having some sort of crazy mixed-up feelings about his mortality because his son just beat him in basketball. Like, that's what we were supposed to learn from. So senior year rolled around, and it was like, it's time for senior retreat. And the one thing I knew about the senior retreat was that it was three days long. And I was like, shit, I don't want to watch The Great Santini. For three days straight, <laughs> that's terrible. And so I wasn't looking forward to it. And then eventually I found out, like some the priests, like they pulled us aside and they said, uh, "Since you're seniors, you're you're men now, and you get to choose what you want to do for your retreat." And so each kid got to individually choose what they wanted to do, and there were three options. And the first option was you would go camping. So a bunch of you would go camping with some priests and I wasn't really into camping. So I was like, meh, no. And then the second option was like, you volunteered on a farm. And like, as a black dude, I feel like doing free labor at a farm just isn't a good look. Like I don't care if it's volunteer work, it's just not a good look. So I was like, I don't wanna do that one. So the next option, the last option was a silent retreat. And you would spend three days in this like, commune where you would like hike and there was like a creek and there was like, all those open fields and the only thing was you couldn't talk. And so I was like, all right, that seems easy enough. So I was like, I'll do that, I'll do the silent retreat. So I went to the silent retreat and it was actually, like, it was really pretty, Like you go out and there's a creek and you go hiking and like, it's really nice. And, you, and it's weird when you're somewhere and you don't have to talk because all of a sudden you have no more obligations like it's there's like this great weight that's been lifted off your shoulders because like nobody's expecting anything of you and like you don't owe anybody anything so you're just like with your own peaceful thoughts and it was cool like i'd see like some of the other guys around like we weren't really supposed to interact so we'd like run into each other every now and again and like have some like half-assed sign language like and like shit like that and So it was cool for the first day but then the second day rolled around and it's weird because the reason they gave us this option of the silent retreat was to kind of understand what the Catholic priests go through when they have like vows of silence and stuff and they call it a vow of silence but what it really is is quitting talking cold turkey. Which, like, when you quit smoking, you at least get, like, nicotine gum or, like, a patch or something like that. But this is just, like, no fucking talking. Like, 17 years of my life, all I've done is talk. And now I can't do it anymore. And I'm starting to have, like, the DTs. And, like, I'm getting irritable and antsy. And I'm just, like, uh And, like, I don't, I brought a book. And I'm just, like, uh, screw you, book. And just, like, and... I'm trying to figure out, like, how am I going to get through these next two days? And I wound up going to the chapel, and it was, like, this cool little, like, dark room where the only light came from this window that was, like, opaque. And I'm sitting there by myself, and there's a part of me that's hoping for some great awakening. Like, some, like I feel like in high school, I always heard about, like, those great Catholic awakenings, and they always kind of promoted that—that that, that might, you know, send you to the priesthood. And I hadn't totally ruled out like becoming a Catholic priest. I wasn't Catholic, but I'd seen the priests at my high school, and it was like I saw them, and I thought like they actually have like a pretty decent life. Like they live rent-free and they get like three square meals a day. And I thought about it, and I was like, yeah, I could do that. Like I, I left the church part out of it, and I was like. I could totally do that, like live at this school and then just spend all my time in the gym working on my basketball game, and then like I'd join the n b a that was like the thought in my head was that I'd become a Catholic priest and then join the n b a and then just like i just i figured like that would be it like I'd fucking be like the pontiff in the paint and like, like and Nothing happened. I sat in this chapel and there was like there was no awakening and the opposite thing happened where I realized how I would get through these next two days, which was by sleeping through them. (laughs) And that's what I decided to do. I decided for the next two days, all I was going to do was sleep. And that's and like I'm not exaggerating, like I would eat food and then I would go back to sleep. And if I woke up from a nap, I would go back to sleep. Like I never left the bed. If I was asleep, if I was awake in my dreams, I'd force myself to go asleep in my dreams. Like it was just, I'm not waking up for two days straight. And when it was time to go, we're like all outside waiting for the bus and I'm well rested. Like that's the most rested I've ever been in my life and it showed cuz i was like jittery with like energy and i'm noticing that like other guys are also like kind of jittery and i'm i'm like looking at them and i'm like and they're like and i'm realizing like we all fucking bailed on this and we all went to sleep for 2 days and we're all just like there's all this energy and we're like broncos at like a rodeo stall just like and one of the priests is finally like, look, uh, the bus is running late, so if you guys want, you can start talking now. And I think he was hoping that we would have like integrity for his fucking struggle and be like, N-n-n. and instead, we just started screaming. Like, not even words, just, and running, and screaming, and just, like, just hugging each other, because we finally could speak again. And it was, like, so much joy, and, like, this euphoria just washed over all of us, because here's this thing you take for granted, the ability to speak, and it's taken from you, and now, all of a sudden, you can do it again. And I just had, like, all this energy and excitement, and I got back home, and my little brother and I... We're both home that afternoon. Our folks weren't home yet, and so my little brother and I were there, and my little brother went to the kitchen and like made himself a bowl of cereal, and so he's eating cereal in the kitchen, and I'm still trying to like come down from this high and get this energy out of my system, and I'm, like, I'm looking at TV, and I'm like flipping channels, and I wound up stopping on Mighty Morphin' Power Rangers. And the reason I stopped was because I saw a guy run and do a backflip off a brick wall and I was looking at it and in this moment of just like everything that's going in my head like time is slowing down and I can see things and hear things more clearly and I look and I understand the mechanics of what he did that like oh yeah he jumps off his right foot and then uses his left foot to both plant and give himself momentum that he uses to sort of go into the backflip and it just does itself that seems really easy that's that's easy i could do that i should do that let's do that (laughs) and full of joy i come running down the hallway and into the living room which was right next to the kitchen where my brother's eating cereal and I jump off my right foot and my left foot hits the wall and stays there. And all the joy leaves my body, very much like all the milk is leaving my little brother's body as he's spitting cereal all over the kitchen table in shock. And there's a hole in the wall. because what I didn't account for was that he did this on a brick wall. And I did this on drywall. And now I'm totally sobered up and I'm just like, shit, fuck this, like, there's a hole in the living room wall. And like my folks, my my mother and my stepfather are coming home soon. I don't know how to explain this. Because if I told them that, like, me as a 17 year old sort of man decided to try to do a (laughs) backflip off their living room wall, like, they're gonna have me committed. There's no way I can do that. I can't explain it that way. So I'm like, I have to think of something more plausible. And my little brother and I came up with the idea that, okay, here's a more plausible explanation. I was chasing my little brother through the house and he slipped and his shoulder fell into the wall because it was about a shoulder size hole and to make sure we jammed his shoulder in it sort of worked it in there so that it fit and then also so that way he had like some drywall crumbs on him so it looked real And we figured this would be a good way to sort of just spread the blame around between, like, me, my brother, and the guy who built our house. (laughs) Like, this is also on you, contractor. And so my parents come home, and they're not thrilled. They're not thrilled at all about it. I'm surprised. But they're not very happy. And... They didn't, like, we couldn't fix it. Like, it was one of those things where it's like my parents weren't like, okay, let's throw money at this problem. You know, we couldn't pay to fix it. So there's just a hole sitting there reminding me of this moment of joy that I had. And it just sat there. And then a little bit after that, I had a birthday, uh, like a few weeks later. And when I was a little kid, my mother had made this banner Uh, And it was like a 20 by 30 banner. And it said like, happy birthday, Wyatt. And there was like a cake on it. And when I was a little kid, she would hang that up in the living room. So I'd walk out and I'd be like, oh yeah, there's that banner for my birthday. (laughs) And so now turning 18, she hangs up this thing that I used to only see as a child on the wall to hide the hole. And it works, and it's up there, you know, it's like my birthday happens, and it's up there for like a week, and then two weeks, and then a month, and then three months, and it stays up for almost a year, until my brother's birthday, where we replace it with his banner. There's something very weird about having a birthday banner up for like nine months out of the year in the room that your parents entertain people because your parents' friends generally don't give a shit about you. Like they know enough information about you to like sort of get that part of the conversation out of the way with your parents like, oh, how's Wyatt? He's good, okay, I don't care. Let's talk about what we really want to talk about, wine. (laughs) And so it was always very weird to be in my house when like, some of my parents' friends were over and they would see this banner and they'd be like, oh, it's your birthday, happy birthday. And it's like, no, it's not my birthday. That particular moment of joy that you just felt is actually, it's just a mask for what is a lot of damage underneath. And really, I don't know if this is the most appropriate time to tell me happy birthday or to start doing the electric slide. (laughs) So for me, that's joy. Like, joy is this great moment of happiness followed by a giant hole in drywall. (laughs) Thank you.
1: This is Risk. We heard a little something from Jeff Barr called Happy Thoughts, and this is called Bath Time in Clerkenwell by the Clerkenwell Kid. I'm going to try something new now, something a little different. Uh, At the Risk live shows, I often tell these short stories between the big ones. So now we will transition from me to me. We call this one the still heart. Well, it's no surprise that on the subject of joy, a lot of people think of relationships. Um, I was reminded that I did not have a boyfriend until I was 31, and I wanted one since I was three. I was conscious of wanting one since about three. I spent my 20s just worrying and worrying and worrying about this, and I would go through hell just to bring myself to say hello to a guy, like at a bar. And if I got to the awkward point that I actually got his phone number, then I would spend the next, you know, 48 hours going uh, uh, Is he going to call me? Am I going to call him? Uh, how long do I wait? How long is What's he thinking now? Ah! So If it was going to work out at all It was going to have to be That he would like to be With a basket case Basically
3: <laughs>
1: So nothing, nothing shook Nothing shook And then it was In 97 I was at this gay pride parade With all my friends we Were watching the circus Come down 5th Avenue And just to our right, there's this super cute Filipino boy. Actually, he's just to our right, but he's actually like uh, 20 feet above us because he has climbed a telephone pole. And I look over at him and he smiles at me, this big, beautiful smile. And without, I didn't have time to think. I just smiled right back. And then I got shy and looked down. But every time I looked back up, we were smiling at each other. And I'm like, well, this, this is, there's no more perfect time to say hello, except for one thing. He's 20 feet above us on a telephone pole. What am I going to be like, hi? you know? And in retrospect, I could have just walked up and said, hey, Come on down, which a police officer was surely about to do at any moment (laughs) But then my friends were like, no, 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 we gotta get to this party The ecstasy's about to kick in, let's get the fuck out of here So my friends start running off and I'm like, oh no, I'm gonna lose him, I'm gonna lose him So I start running after them and now the Filipino boy and I are looking back at each other And it's like, oh, 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 okay And then four years later I'm walking down Park Avenue. Now this was in October of 2001. So for the past month, the city had just been going through every emotion imaginable because of 9-11. And there was something about that period, just the, the vibe of New Yorkers in general during that period, where it was like people were a little less neurotic, people were a little less bullshitty, people were just like a little more real. So I guess I was just kind of in that state. And I'm walking down Park Avenue and I'm crossing the street and I see this big smile pass me. And then we turn and we're both smiling at each other. And again, you know, I can't help it. It's just a big smile and and we start to say hello to each other. And he says to me, you know, we've smiled at each other before. Uh, Four years ago at the gay pride parade, I was up on top of a telephone pole. And I said, holy fucking shit, I totally remember that. And there was just this instant, like, connection between us. And we, we had a little chat and we exchanged phone numbers. But it was walking away that I had this kind of surreal experience. I realized I'm not worried. I'm not asking myself, am I going to call him? Is he going to call me? When, 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 None of that. I just felt this kind of, like, calm This like peace with the fact that, yeah, we're going to be getting together. And so that, I think, was one of the most profound moments of joy for me. The lack of the worry. And that was, in fact, the beginning of my first relationship. was a song about one of the simple joys, doing the laundry, that is, uh, by The Small Dinosaurs, AKA Cerebral Pauly, from an album called Household Songs. Look up The Small Dinosaurs on MySpace. This is Ultra Cat, behind me now. Here's a story by the very funny stand-up comedian, Mr. Mike Lawrence. It's called Confessions of a Bleeding Penis.
4: so uh you know you have a really depressed friend when they constantly tell you this is the happiest i've ever been in my life that is a sure sign and i say that about six or seven times a year so i've said it like at least four times this year but no i'm really happy uh but I remember the first time I ever said that, and that was in, in high school, and, and I truly did feel like I was the happiest that I'd ever been because I finally found something that I was good at, and that was slam poetry. Um, now, I, I remember spending many years like trying to just do something. We all try to find our identities. I, 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 want, I remember I wanted to be an astronaut, and then I... It was a combination of realizing how much math was involved and the movie Apollo 13 coming out (laughs) that made me not want to do that. Uh, I wanted to be a wrestler, and then I realized it was fake, and then it didn't seem exciting to me anymore. I wanted to be a superhero, and I realized that was fake. Uh, And so I didn't have any purpose. I was was really uh, depressed, and I remember being invited to this... uh, There was a, a poetry... Club at the, the local library and uh, and I went and I did my first poem ever, which was called "Love" on my fifteenth birthday, which for the next few years I called my rebirth day because that was the day I found myself. And uh, so, fun fact: atheists can be more annoying than Christians. Uh, I was so proud because. And then I, and, I, and then I would go every single month, and I was so committed to it. Uh, and I feel like the amount of joy you have in a particular moment can be uh, personified and valued based on how much shame you have when you look back at it. So that truly was the happiest moment <laughs> of my life because it was so sad. Uh, and I would go to this teen poetry... Uh, meeting every single month my dad would take me sit out in the library lobby for about an hour to an hour and 30 minutes which I didn't feel bad about because he used to take me to AA meetings when I was six and I'd be in a church lobby so I felt like I was getting even on some level <laughs> except the, the alcoholics eventually changed themselves the the poets are still what they are it's uh, <laughs> the only difference uh, Because, like, most people would go and they'd have one or two poems. I would read seven or eight, but have ten to fifteen. And I would just write and write and write. And I had so much to say and and so much to feel and think. And I believed that everyone wanted to listen. And I was in the high school literary club. I won a a poetry competition uh, in in high school. I won the... uh, Sin Quain Award, Best Sin Quain, and this was literally my Sin Quain. It's a five-line poem. Uh, I die, but no tears fall, no sympathy at all, just another death in this world, that's all. I spent eight hours on that. I was so proud of it. I still have the plaque. What if that was the guy in second place? Just... (laughs) Giving you credit where credit is due. Uh, but yeah, it was this it was this amazing thing. I remember at the Poetry Awards, there was a band that dedicated their cover of the Cranberry Zombie to the victims of Columbine. Uh, because they hadn't suffered enough. Uh, <laughs> one of the, the saddest moments of, of the of all this, uh, but by that I mean happiest back then, was I wrote my own screenplay. Uh, Anyone write their own screenplay when they were 16? No, just this dreamer. Uh, Yeah, I wrote my own screenplay, and the name of it was Definitive Verse, and it was about, it was very fictional. It was about a teenage poet named Johnny Angel who killed himself so that the world may live. We started shooting it. Uh, we have like five minutes of footage, uh, which the world will never see. So I'm glad I get my own The Day the Clown Cried. Uh feels good. But uh, I remember uh, I went to uh, the Make Your Own T-shirt place at the mall and made my own Definitive Verse T-shirt. On the front it said, A poem a day keeps the therapist away. And on the back it said, Definitive Verse 2000. Now, there is nothing more sad than someone going to the make-your-own-t-shirt place with a purpose. That is not a good thing to do. But I was so, I was so committed to this. Uh, I remember when Columbine happened, they checked my bags. I was banned from my prom uh, for two reasons. One, I wrote a poem about how certain people at the school should die. <laughs> And I had the face of someone who looked like they would uh, do that. So, <laughs> so I had to sign a waiver that would say I would not go to my prom. Um, and I didn't. Now the thing about poetry, I spent eight years doing this stuff. And I started, I, I went through some of my old poems over the last few days. And they don't make any sense to me. They, they had titles like Call Waiting, W-A-D-I-N-G. There's no meaning. It's just really clever. Uh, there was another one called Confessions of a Bleeding Penis. Oh, I also I want to preface, no sex, drugs, or rock and roll during all of this time. Just so you know, none, nothing was touching this uh, during any of these poems. Uh, and the, the moment... I think the moment that I realized that, and I remember like my first MySpace profile under description poet, dreamer, explorer, (laughs) in that order of importance, Uh, I was so committed to this, I went to open mics all the time, when I was 18 years old, they threw me out of the teenage poetry club at the library, Uh, for two reasons. One, I was too old. And two, I made too many of the other girls cry when I told them their poems were crap. And that mine were the only ones that mattered. And I was really committed to it. And then what ended up happening was, my dad was like, I know you really want to do this. There was only one other poetry club in the city. And it was at a local Barnes & Noble. And it was all Jewish senior citizens. So I went from one extreme to another. I went from I lost my innocence but gained common sense to I don't know the difference between a bagel and a bialy. Only a dollar, by golly. <laughs> <laughs> These 85-year-old people who have experienced everything in life were writing about pastries. That's what they wrote about. And people who had gone through nothing in life we were writing about all the pain and suffering that they had had in the world. Uh, but I'd say the defining moment uh, that made me realize that this is something that I couldn't do anymore was, it, it had eluded me for years, but I had finally gone to my first official poetry slam. Uh, it was uh, the West Palm Beach team. They have like different teams, and they do national competitions and stuff. What happens is you go up, and you do your poem, And then they pull out numbers, like, you know, 0 through 10, and uh, they grade you. And I got in 7th place. Now, that was okay. What wasn't okay was everything that was in places 1 through 6. That made me realize this is something I could never do. Uh, There was a poem called Asian by Persuasion, where a guy was like, My skin may be yellow, but my mood is mellow. I am for real in this shit. Second place, that guy. He beat me by five fucking places. I realized I couldn't compete in this based on the competition. Uh, There was, oh man, so much rape poetry, so much from the rapist perspective even, like creepy old guys going up, have you ever touched a dream? Do you feel it in your hands, like silly putty, like a flag waving in the wind? It was, I mean, it was so, this stuff, I remember their poetry more than mine because hate lasts forever. And the only way that I could describe this moment of going to this poetry slam was, do you guys remember that Blind Melon video, No Rain? when the little bumblebee girl gets made fun of and she goes to the field of all the other bumblebees and she's dancing, that's exactly what it was like if I realized how much I fucking hate bees. <laughs> Ugh, bees suck. Like that's, I, and I couldn't do it. And I pretty much I stopped doing poetry and I went to an open mic the next month and uh, did stand-up comedy for the first time at an open mic called The Chocolate Moose that I'd been doing poetry at for six years. It was basically like uh, if Dylan had gone electric, other than that it was at a coffee shop and nobody knew who Bob Dylan was. That's exactly (laughs) what it was like. And I've been doing that ever since, and I'm a lot less proud of the work that I do, but I'm a lot happier, so. (laughs) That's gotta count for something. Mm, I'm going down though, baby. Yo,
5: the baby. Your street in a range. Boom, boom, baby Ready to let it go Shimmy, shimmy, go up Listen to it, Pat Light it up and take a pub Pass it to me i going down, down, baby No street and a range Boom, boom, baby Ready to let it go Shimmy, shimmy, go up Listen to it, Pat Light it up and take a pub Pass it to me now. You can find me I'm
1: That was one of the groundbreaking mashups by the freelance Hellraiser that's Nelly and the theme from the British television series of the 1970s, Grange Hill. The mashup is called City Grammar and this behind me now is the Do or DIY uh, clan as well as people like us with a song called Awful Fun. Here comes one of my favorite people, just a wonderful guy and a truly great storyteller, Mr. Adam Wade, with a story we call Night in Hoboken.
6: Uh, my name is Adam Wade, I am originally from New Hampshire. Um, first 23 years of my life I spent in New Hampshire, I went to college, Keene State College in Keene, New Hampshire, and, and I always wanted, my dream, I, when I was like second grade, I got crooked in Times Square, the book, I wanted to move to New York. And, and, and finally, when I graduated, I moved to New York, and uh, I'm not gonna lie, like I had a, a few uh, hookups in college, but nothing to write home about. So when I, when I moved to New York, I was expecting that a, a lot of things were, were, were gonna go well uh, with the ladies and me. <laughs> But I didn't live in like Manhattan or, or one of the boroughs, uh, outer boroughs, I, I lived in Fairview, New Jersey, that's where I got housing because I didn't know anybody and uh, it's about 45 minutes away from the city and I would take the bus into work and stuff. Uh, but it was very difficult to socially because I lived alone and in, in Fairview there weren't a lot of um, women my age and there weren't actually any bars. Um, so I would go to bars and if I ended up doing well, uh, my options were, to spend a hundred dollars that I didn't have to take a cab all the way to Fairview, uh, or uh, go to the Port Authority and they had like a, like the little gypsy buses outside and, and and take the bus back with the girl, and, and uh, it never uh, worked out. <laughs> but after uh, two years, I moved to Ho- Hoboken, New Jersey, and, and for, uh, and potential and, and, and when I say, just a lot of bars in, in Hoboken, and I had my own place and I, and I just figured it was just going to be a, a hell of a lot easier, so I, I scouted like like the, the bars and I found like this Irish pub that kind of fit my personality and, and I started going there on the weekends and I would get there like you know, six thirty I'd get a beer and then the middle of light I kind of nurse it for a half hour, and then at seven i 'd get my my burger medium well. And I would just sit there and then i finish that, I'd get another beer. And then when I was done my burger, uh, it was like around eight o'clock, I would stand by like the jukebox and just stand there till like around 30, 10 o'clock and, and I would go home. <laughs> so I was, uh, at the time I was a production assistant at NBC Sports and, and like, all, like I used to tell everybody my, my problems and stuff and, and I had like a couple mentors that were like older guys that worked there, like the sound guys. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. I mean, I'm going there. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm finally in Hoboken. I have my own place. You know, I'm ready. You know, I'm ready to go. You know, ready to go. And, and they're like, Well, you know, you smiling or you never smile? I, go, I, I don't know. They go, Well, smile. See what? I, I go, I, I, I smile. They go, well, Smile. I go, I'll smile. <laughs> so same thing I would do the same thing and then when I was at the jukebox I would just smile and, and like I'm probably like too much because like they started calling me like hey look it's, it's guy smiley and they're like it's a smile guy and and, and and it was frustrating uh, so I was like guys I don't know what the hell I'm doing I'm, I'm doing everything you say like I'm going I'm smiling I'm, and they like, all go right, all, right, all right well let's break it down now what, when, when you go like, what time do you go? I go, well, I go, you know, 6.30 and then, and then... They go, Jesus Christ! They go, no, 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 no. They go, what time do you leave? I go, like, 10.30, I mean, I gotta get up, I gotta go to sleep, they go, no. Take a nap or do what you gotta do, but then you go at like 11 o'clock and stay till closing and see what happens. As the numbers go, things will get better, you smile, you get your beers, and we'll see what happens. And I go, all right, I can take a nap. They go, drink Diet Coke, whatever you need to do just get there stay and then just sit there and smile and see what happens so i did and, and, and after about like eight weeks it happened and it, it was like going down and i was sitting there and then i was like all right i'm gonna go and then i'm like all right stay five more minutes and go. And, and this girl, she was uh, like like a very, very thin girl, came over to me, she was pretty, and, and, and I had four, I'm a lightweight four beers, so, the uh, beer, beer goggles, so I, I, go, I go, hello, and she goes, hi, and, and this was like my first real conversation with the girl in Hoboken, and I go, how you doing, and, 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 and like I was getting what I wanted here, you know, this is great, I was, I was very nervous, so I saw like, and she's like, You want to do something? And I go, Yes, yes, I do, I do. When well, you're, know, you know, there's a 24 hour bagel place, you want to go get a bagel? And she's like, No, I don't want to get a bagel. I go, like, oh, All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's like, Why don't you take me home? I go, like, Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now she's like, Yeah, I go, okay. So like we're walking home and I and, and like the whole thing is like I, I made her like it, it, she was doing me a big favor, and, and she did talk like that like she was so but I, I yeah you know, I was lonely and I was just very happy like this was this was great and so we, we, we go down to my basement apartment and, and uh, she's not impressed and I'm very neat so I was but it was clean and she goes no way no way I go what 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 and she goes I will not hook up with a man with a twin bed. And I'm like, come on, come on, come on. And she's like, no. And she's ready to leave And I go, I got, I got, a, I got, a, I got a bigger bed, I got a full size. And she's like, where? So I, I went went under the bed and I, I pulled out, like when my brother comes, I pulled out the air mattress. And, and I, like for $7 more, you could have got the one that plugged in and you hit the button. But I didn't, I have just like the little pump that you have to do manually. And like I could say, yeah, I was trying to be quirky and go. No, I was just desperate and uh, so I was just pumping it up quickly. And she and she's like, well, "Have a good night, nice meeting." I go, "Wait, wait, hey, did you know like Sylvester Stallone lived on one of these when he wrote Rocky?"
3: <laughs>
6: and she's like, "What the fuck does that supposed to mean?"
3: <laughs>
6: well, what it means is you know it's like I. I got potential.
3: <laughs>
6: <laughs> and then, like, she grabbed the door. I go, wait, 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 wait. No. One more. Hey, let's face reality It's 2.30 30 on a Saturday night. This is the best you can do. <laughs> which is good, which is good. I was working on my confidence, which is good. So, you can go home now and, you know, feel bad for yourself. You can come over here. And, Come over here and you can hug me. She, she didn't hug me, uh, she laughed. Uh. <laughs> so so I, I went to work, and the next day I go, what the fuck you guys doing? you, you know, you you're telling me to smile, they start making fun of me, you're telling me to do all these things. I go, they go, no, you're doing, this is awesome. I go, how is it awesome? They go, it's so awesome. You're doing it, it's gonna happen. You're playing the numbers, it's gonna happen, but this is huge. You're making huge steps here. I go, huge. They go, just keep doing what you're doing and it's gonna work. I go, oh, all right, and then they were good guys. I like, okay, okay. So 11 weeks later,
3: <laughs>
6: it, it was a big night for me. So the bars closed, there was like four girls left. A healthy sized girl of the group came over to me. <laughs> And she was like a plus size Belinda Carlisle from the Go Go's. Like and I'm like I'm a, That's my go-to of the go-go's. Belinda Carlisle has always been my favorite. So uh, we start talking and it's very easy and I've had four beers again, so I'm pretty much shit faced. So I go, ah, oh, hey, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? Uh, uh. And she's like, oh, I go, yeah. And she goes, um, you know who I like and I go, oh who, who, who? And she's like, Marvin Gaye. and I'm like He's got a great voice, doesn't he? And she's like, yeah. Go, yeah. She's like, do you have any Marvin Gaye at home? And I go, I got his greatest hits. I got his greatest hits, you know? And, I go, you want? and she's like, well, why don't we go to your place and listen to him? I go, that would be wonderful. We'll go now, right? And she goes, yes. So we walk to the door, and I go, wait. I, I just, full disclosure, I like to cock myself in good situations. <laughs> so I'm like, uh, yeah, I just want to let you know, you know, I live in a basement apartment, yeah. She's like, I don't care. And i go, oh great, great, great. And um, one, one more thing, um, you know, like I got, I, I got a twin bed. You know, uh, she's like, I don't care. Take me home. And I was like, oh, right, you're, you're a nice girl. You're a nice girl. <laughs> so we go home and uh, and, and we get in the apartment and, and like I'd like to say it was like like the best porno ever, like what we did and stuff, but uh, <laughs> it was extremely awkward. There's a lot of like dry humping and I was trying to get my pants off and her ejaculation, and, uh, and I was just trying to get back into business, and I couldn't. And, and we were hugging a lot, and like going around, but she didn't complain. She was just happy, and it was great. Like, and, and I was happy too. But like, not like it, everything. It, it was, it was perfect. It was perfect. So, so we we just kind of tuckered out after, and and and, and 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 like we fell asleep in the bed, and uh, like about two hours later, like I woke up, and I, and, and, and to this sound, and it was like. No disrespect to her, but it was like, whew, whew, and I go Jesus Christ, because I, I had not been in in a bed with a woman or anybody else in a long time. So I was like, oh, oh and, and I look over and I'm like, kind of like pinned to the wall because the bed to make space. And I and and, and, and I look and it's her, and, and she's she has like a cold, so she's like snoring. That's her way of snoring, and she's got like like uh, like uh, like, uh, like snots on and, and all over like her face. And... <laughs> She looks beautiful, you know. She she looks like an angel, you know. And I'm just like just watching her sleep for a little while, but I really gotta pee. And so then I I just kind of like like go around her, and and I get off the bed, and I pee. And when I get back uh, to the my my bedroom slash whole apartment, I. uh, I look, and now she's like spread eagle on the bed. And then she's taking up the, 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 but like she has like, she's sleeping, but she has like a smile on her face. And I, I'm not like an egomaniac, but like in my mind, I'm looking at her and she looks very satisfied. I mean, she looks like I've, I so a night with Adam and she's been satisfied. And so there's no way like I'm going to wake her up. So I, I, I walk over and I look over at her and, I get down and I, I, I pull the air mattress out. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I start uh, pumping it up and like I get on the, the air mattress and I'm laying there. And, and the way she is, the way she's like on the bed, like she's got her arm over, and um, it's like hanging. And I, I put her hand in my hand, and like that's how, how like we we, we fall asleep. I've been in Hoboken for eight years, and I've, I you know, don't want the shtick fly, I've been with women a few, and, and no disrespect to them, but like without a doubt, that was like the best night I've had in Hoboken. Thank you.
1: does it, folks. If you are going to the beach or you're going to the park, don't forget to put a couple episodes of Risk on your iPod and tell your friends to do the same. This is Skybox behind me from their fantastic album, Morning Aftercuts. They're at skyboxmusic.com. Today is the day, folks. Take a risk.
5: This is my best friend and this is
3: my birthday cake.